BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, February 4th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So, hey, do you listen to Reply All? I don't, but that show is phenomenal. Yeah, so um, this is like not actually an official advertisement for them. I just really like the show. Uh, But they have a segment on it called Yes, Yes, No, uh, where the two hosts, Alex and PJ, uh, and usually Alex Bloomberg, talk about a particular tweet and they try to see if they can all understand it. So it usually starts out with like Alex and PJ are the yes and the yes. They understand everything about the tweet. Uh, and Alex Bloomberg is the no. Uh, and so they like go through the origins of, of all the different parts of the tweet until they all get to yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Sure. Maybe. Okay. Well, one of the things that reminded me of this yes, yes, no this week is a tweet that uh, from the real Donald Trump. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm familiar with that account, but there's so many tweets from it that could be in this yes, yes, no category <laughs> that I have no idea which one you're going to pick. Okay, so this is one that actually uh, was is in a lot of different feeds from people who I actually probably think are listeners of the show. So this is this is what uh, the real Donald Trump tweeted. In the beautiful Midwest, wind chill temperatures are reaching minus 60 degrees, the coldest ever recorded. In coming days, expected to get even colder. People can't last outside even for minutes. What the hell is going on with global warming? Please come back fast. We need you. Are uh, you at yes, yes, no? <laughs> so there's a couple things. I believe it's global waming, as he spelled it. <laughs> oh, Not global I... warming. He misspelled warming. Waming. Um, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Beyond that, yeah, it's really cold and abnormally cold, like once in a generation cold throughout most of North America right now. Well, the thing that I wanted to talk to I talk about, though, is a response to that tweet uh, about the polar vortex. So my favorite response to that particular tweet comes from at Psy Enthusiast, uh, a science enthusiast. And it says, glad you asked. The polar vortex is supposed to stay at the North Pole, but dwindling sea ice from climate change has caused the vortex to split in three places. And that's why it's cold down here. Polar vortex splits like this will become more common as climate change worsens. 
So I saw this exchange on a lot of different feeds of mine on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, etc. And a lot of people are quoting this. And so I wanted to check out like, I mean, it sounds very funny. It sounds um, like a really good explanation. But is it true? I have no idea. I, I, I remember reading about polar vortexes back in like 2014, 2015, when there was like a deep freeze like this. Uh, but I certainly have never seen anything linking it to global warming. Yeah. So the best uh, example that I have of something, uh, you know, sci- from from science <laughs> that sort of explains this is uh, this idea that, OK, so we know the polar vortex is like a, a swirling mass of Arctic air and uh, it's supposed to be around the North Pole all year l- long. Yeah, and it's it going has west a- to east and just basically a circle around the North Pole. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when it grows, so presumably as it gets colder, um, some of these swirls of air are transported south by a polar jet stream, also called the polar front. And that's when you can sometimes get uh, some of these, you know, frigid temperatures in places that aren't the Arctic. But when the vortex becomes less stable, and it starts to, as they say, you know, maybe split, or maybe you think of it as like circulating in waves rather than like in a circle, then it can cause the, the vortex to create some of these stray blasts of Arctic weather. So I don't know about the splitting in three places. I haven't found a good source for that particular uh, piece of information, but it does seem plausible that the vortex can have, um, you know, these kinds of longer, longish effects uh, away from the Arctic Circle that could explain some of the really cold air in places like Chicago. Yeah, and I believe this polar vortex is going to reach, you know, even northern Florida. So this is a pretty, you know, enormous landmass that it's covering. You know, one of the things I I read on this topic was that as uh, we get sea ice melting in um, in the summer months, and and we get as more ice melts and the Arctic Ocean warms up, some of the the ocean that's that's forming as that ice is melting is radiating some of that heat off of it back up into the atmosphere. And there's been some link, but not conclusive link, that that radiation from warmer ocean temperatures tends to disrupt the vortex. And that's when we can get this weaker polar vortex where we get these stray air masses coming down. But that link in terms of like that warming, that radiative pressure from what I saw in Scientific American was it's basically been seen like once or twice. So not enough to prove that this happens on a regular basis. Yeah. So I mean, I think that there is, uh, you know, obviously, I think that the idea that one cold snap uh, is proof against climate change, as uh, the real Donald Trump uh, seems to imply, is not based on fact. Um, But I also don't know that we can be, you know, smug enough in our explanation to say, hey, this is exactly what's going on. And it is due to climate change uh, entirely. I mean, I think there is evidence supporting the the idea that this is related to climate change and that uh, climate change could cause this particular cold snap. Uh, But I'm not sure we are at the point where we can say, exactly, you know, the correlation between or the causation of, you know, global warming, melting sea ice has caused cold air in Chicago. To me, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter because in the context of things, um, we're just seeing weather cycles that are more inconsistent than we ever saw before. And uh, we can attribute that to global warming for sure. And this in- unpredictability is something that we need to address with policy, in my view. But I will say 
there is one positive from all this polar vortex because it's gotten so cold outside where there's literally, you know, large cities where the temperature is, you know, minus 30, minus 40, the temperature, not just like how it feels with the wind chill. And at that temperature, you can get vodka to freeze outside. And <laughs> and I just want to note that vodka ice cubes are a rare thing in this day and age. And the only time I've ever seen one made, it was made with liquid nitrogen. The ice crystals form in a very different way there. So if you are an intrepid uh, follower of this podcast, make some vodka ice and share with us how it goes, because I think it's an interesting experiment. Or if you're just coming off of dry January and you don't want to drink, the other cool thing that you can do in cold air is blow bubbles. Have you ever seen people blowing bubbles in very cold air? It is gorgeous because yeah. like the freezing patterns you get, you get that sort of fractalization of the ice along the bubbles. I think the coolest thing I've seen is people actually um, uh, using uh, a vape to fill the bubble with a little bit of smoke and then having it freeze around that so it's opaque and you can see some of the patterns uh, even more clearly. Now you have something to do. <laughs> I'm not in favor of people vaping, just for the record, just for this cool science experiment. Right, well, one other story that caught my eye this week uh, really comes at uh, the intersection of two things that are very important and personal to me. Um, one is that there are some devastating diseases that um, friends of friends of mine have suffered from that rob you of the ability to speak. Uh, so for example, ALS is one example where ultimately um, individuals lose the ability to speak themselves. And obviously that can be very devastating because your voice is really a big part of who you are. Um, the other side of this story, though, is that it talks about a tool that I used when I was a grad student which is to record directly from neurons in the human brain uh, in patients with epilepsy. So bringing these two uh, things that are dear to me together, the Zuckerman Institute at Columbia University has a study out in scientific reports in which they document uh, a new kind of computer model or algorithm that they have to directly translate brain signals into speech. So the cool thing here is that they used a bunch of tools, uh, probably the most important one or the sort of you know biggest leap here is called uh, a vocoder which is a computer algorithm that was trained on a bunch of recordings of people talking and then on the basis of those recordings it can synthesize speech so i mean it still sounds pretty robotic and actually uh let's listen to the vocoder counting from zero to nine <laughs> It is definitely a little robotic, but it doesn't sound so terribly different than the kinds of instruments that some musicians use to create that kind of robotic voice effect. Yeah. And, and you can kind of hear it, like, especially if you know what to listen for, you can kind of hear what it's saying. So what this group did is they had uh, patients with epilepsy who were already undergoing brain surgery to treat their epilepsy. And they actually had two types of patients. They had patients who had um, electrodes uh, on a grid on the outside uh, surface of their brain near the auditory or in the auditory cortex. And they also had uh, patients who had depth electrodes implanted. Those are the kind of patients that I studied where, you know, they have these electrodes implanted deep into the brain, including Heschel's gyrus, which is auditory cortex. Um, 
And what they did is they had the patients listen to um, sentences, just like a 30 minute uh, passage read by two female voices. Um, And then they asked them to also listen to speakers reciting digits from zero to nine. And what they did is they uh, essentially recorded their brain signals in their auditory cortex so that they could run those brain signals through the vocoder. Uh, And then the vocoder uh, you know, that the um, signals in the vocoder was obviously analyzed and cleared up and they applied some more algorithms. And in fact, the algorithms that they used were uh, algorithms that mimic what neurons, how neurons would behave uh, in, in a biological brain. So what they ultimately get is this kind of robotic sounding voice that, that recites a, a sequence of numbers. And so then they had people listen to these recordings and report what they heard. And they found that people could understand and repeat the sounds about 75% of the time. So let me unpack this for you. What they did is they took a bunch of recordings from the human brain. They ran them through a computer processor that kind of mimics what neurons do. And then they played them for people and people could actually understand what those sounds were. So I mean, this is early days, but imagine the implication where, you know, a person with ALS has this kind of electro grid implanted in their auditory cortex and in their speech areas. And what they do is they listen, you know, to a person speaking and then they respond in their minds and they think something like, wow, that's a really interesting story. And the vocoder essentially the the computer algorithm then can translate that into speech and the person can talk again so i mean i know there are ways in which people with als can communicate using um, these kinds of robotic voices but this would be a direct link so eventually you could get to the point where you know potentially you could you could train the the vocoder um, before the person loses the ability to speech with their inflection you know with their timbre uh, and they could retain their own personal speech uh, for much longer periods of time, which I think would be a huge benefit to their, uh, to them and to their families. You're underselling this. This is crazy. This is <laughs> nuts. Like it's nuts. It's like out of the Simpsons nuts. And, and before you say like, that's a joke, there's literally an episode where, you know, Homer's like brother invents it, like, like a baby language decoder, the, like translated, like gobbledygook coming out of her into like speech. And that's not so dissimilar than the, to the algorithm that we're talking about here. This is so unbelievably in front. I'm just, I'm thoroughly impressed. And I, I've heard about like whispers about this kind of work in the past where you're trying to decode these electrical signals and, and apply some, um, some algorithms to them to, to translate them into speech. But usually, what I usually recall from a lot of those studies is just how incredibly noisy it is and how complex it is to, decode that information, especially as complexity rises. Like it's one thing to say a number, which is this really specific thing. But when you go from like one word to a phrase, it becomes inordinately more complex. What you're talking about is thoroughly life-changing though. Yeah, absolutely. And I would recommend that anyone who has a deep interest in this should definitely check out the paper. It's in scientific reports. And you can listen to a whole bunch of the um, audio under supplementary information. Uh, it's really interesting, uh, you know, if this is your thing, I, I find it really fascinating. And again, you know, we are still a ways away. But boy, it seems like finally, uh, we're getting to the point where, you know, 
relatively quickly, this could become a, a real thing. Wow, that's crazy. We all want to be able to practice mindfulness every day, but sometimes it can be hard when we are overwhelmed with work and other aspects of life. Well, there's an app called Blinkist that can help. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need to know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health to history books. I like Blinkist because it can give me the feel for a book in 15 minutes, and then if I'm really hooked, I can go back and read the whole thing. There are a number of books uh, that might interest our listeners. One that I'm reading right now is called Becoming by Michelle Obama, and it's really interesting and great. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash minds to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash minds. If you love digging in deep into topics that interest you, that's what The Great Courses is all about. The Great Courses offers in-depth digital video courses from top experts who are not only extremely knowledgeable, but also passionate about their subjects. You can keep the courses forever so you can watch them anytime, anywhere. And here at Inquiring Minds, we highly recommend the course Your Deceptive Mind from The Great Courses. Over the course of 24 lectures, Dr. Stephen Novella investigates how our brains work to process information and misinformation, how we can learn to separate science from the pseudoscience that surrounds us every day, and how we can become stronger critical thinkers. One of my favorite parts of this lecture series is how he describes the logical fallacies that we can all fall prey to. He does a really excellent job. So if you've ever been confused about those, definitely check it out. And The Great Courses is giving our Inquiring Minds listeners a special limited time offer. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's $185 savings. And you can start watching it immediately. This incredible deal is only available for a limited time and only by going to thegreatcourses.com slash minds. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash minds. That's thegreatcourses.com slash minds. I want to revisit one of the um, craziest interviews we've ever done on Inquiring Minds, and that's when you talked to uh, neuroscientist Ed Boyden, who is one of the up-and-coming stars of neuroscientist. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, totally. So, you know, it, full disclosure, he was a grad student when my husband was a postdoc uh, at Stanford, and so they were friends. And even then, it was clear that Ed was on a plane by himself. <laughs> Yeah. And I think you literally talked about like setting off mini bombs in the brain to kind of like decode um, almost nanoscale activity and and try to image whole like sets of neurons working together, which I think when you recorded that podcast like three years ago, that was pure science fiction at the time. And his work has only progressed from there. And I'm going to give you a sneak peek into what he uh, what he's doing now, which is still boggles the mind. So I think when you talked to him, you talked a lot about some of his seminal work in um, what's called expansion microscopy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and this technique, which is uh, which is mind blowing in and of itself, is is Ed is using essentially like a substrate, like a like an aerogel, like a polyacrylate gel, like like the kinds of adsorbent material that you'd find in a in a diaper, and using its properties to help 
expand sort of an image. So what he essentially does is uses the properties of this and sort of attach materials uh, embedded in this area, aerogel. Let's say you embed like a piece of DNA or um, a cellular structure of uh, like a, a neuron. You embed it in this aerogel and then you use the aerogel's properties like when it receives water, it expands just like it would in a diaper and uses that to kind of blow out what you can see. And then using... Um, some really advanced imaging techniques, be able to see the structure of this sort of very minute kind of tightly packed together thing, whether it be DNA or a cell, but you see it sort of blown out and stretched out and you can using, you know, different computational power sort of piece back together what it looked like sort of compressed down together. But this overcomes some like really big barriers with imaging, which, you know, as you get down to a nanoscale barrier, we just have like physics limitations to the imaging. And this is used everywhere, right? Like, especially in neuroscience. So like expansion microscopy is like, it's one of those things that that's launched Ed into, uh, into being one of the more famous neuroscientists in the, in the world. And now that the technique has been adapted in many different uh, ways, I think there, there's two that I want to talk about. So he did a collaboration with a, a scientist at uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Janelia Research Campus, where they basically are illuminating tissues with sort of like a sheet of light, like all at once. So instead of having a pinpoint of light, which is typically how microscopy is done, if we have a wall of light, we can sort of image like whole structures. And so we can capture all like the nooks and crannies. So you imagine like something like, let's say like a fruit fly brain or like, you know, a mouse cortex, which is has all these intricate connections. But using a wall of light and imaging everything sort of all at once, you get um, whole structures. They combine that with Ed's work, um, which is this this sort of aerogel expansion microscopy work, which turns the like one of the side products of it is turns the cells transparent. And all of a sudden, this wall of light can kind of penetrate all the nooks and crannies. And we're able to image nearly an entire flute fry brain in one one go they basically move this sort of wall of light you know like in microns across the brain and create this sort of image as they went along and then computationally it was sort of stitched back together they had to account for how like that aerogel swells and expands on minute levels you know based on like the the solvent that it's in so they had to account for that computationally, but they were able to stitch together a picture of an entire fruit fly brain. It's crazy. That's, that's amazing. That's like, you know, putting a fruit fly in an fMRI scanner and yeah, being able basically. to sort of, but not only that, but get to the resolution where you can see everything in all of the cells. Uh, and the reason I think this is so super exciting is because, of course, the fruit fly is a model for genetic, uh, you know, expression and genetic changes that can be, you know, assessed to the nervous system. And so like, all of a sudden, we can start to image on a whole brain level uh what might be the effect of you know all kinds of various ways to manipulate the nervous system so ed's taking this even one step farther well like in a totally different direction okay so we can make things bigger that way we can overcome this resolution barrier awesome can we go in the reverse direction we're talking about going full ant-man now right so Wait, what <laughs> yeah get this yeah so what he, his lab did was, okay, we can expand things out. What if we start with like a big chunk of this aerogel 
And we like sort of cut a path in it with like light or lasers and create some areas that are sort of anchors. We can anchor something to it. Let's say we anchor a bit of DNA to it. And then we're going to flood that area with like fluorescent molecules um, that'll bind to this area to sort of give us illumination in it. Awesome, right? So now we have this sort of like blown out big aerogel thing that we can we can sort of like image as is, but doesn't give us a peek into the nanoscale world. Well, instead of adding something that sort of hydrates the aerogel, can we make it constrict and see how that shape changes um, as it goes down in size? So they started adding acid uh, to this air to this polyacrylate gel, which breaks down the negative charges inside the gels. And so they don't kind of like repel each other, making the structure stay uh, in place. And so all of a sudden you get upwards of like tenfold dimensional shrink in it. Wow. And, and now they're like squeezing the DNA. So now if you attach like certain substrates where you're wondering like how they sort of fit together, you're essentially creating a pattern of how they sort of collapse down. And by measuring how that the fluorescence is changing over time, how it's sort of shifting in its shape, you can reconstruct how it how it looks at, at a smaller size than what you began. That is crazy. <laughs> And yeah, like, I mean, I'm missing all sorts of nuance here that uh, is sure because this is like way above my head. But the basic principles hold. It is. I mean, crazy. could you imagine then that and I don't even know if this is the right application for it, but like kind of building a big kind of biologically informed brain and then shrinking it down and implanting it? <laughs> Well, I don't know about the last part of that, the implanting <laughs> part. But I mean, we're talking about taking stuff that are objects that maybe like a cubic millimeter in size. And then essentially with techniques like this, getting us down to like resolutions, like 50, a hundred nanometers. Like we can't wow. do that with typical microscopy. And I get it. It's like, it's stitched together. There's computation involved in all of this kind of things, but this kind of like creativity to sort of image the world, the, the, the smallest world is so fascinating. And it gives us, insight to a disease state cellular changes that we just couldn't have before weirdly uh over the past few months i've been exposed to like all of these kind of breakthroughs in imaging that are happening and i never really thought about imaging but the infrastructure that we place in imaging like the computational breakthroughs like how we um improve resolution they're going to have really massive ramifications to to moving um, biological and biomedicine forward yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, it, it still kind of amazes me that we are able to do as much as we are able to do when our imaging tools are still fairly crude. You know, I mean, when you think about the kinds of tests that we can do to our bodies, whether it's, uh, you know, a CT scan or, you know, a, you know, an MRI or, or what have you, it's still pretty crude in terms of the resolution. But like, you know, in the way that we look at, say, the microbiome is still very much about like, let's take a sample and send it to a lab. And, you know, it's really pretty primitive. Um, now, imagine that you could do that, you know, get get sort of much more detailed information through imaging, and you could like image your microbiome at work in your intestines. I don't <laughs> like, know about the at work part. So but much yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, like, no, but imagine, imagine like you were having digestive problems and you could like go into this imaging machine and like, you know, eat something, eat a sandwich. And all of a sudden they could watch how that sandwich travels through your digestive system. I mean, that could be really informative. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like the, the more that we get about change over time in these states, the more the resolution we can create with that, the more we're going to a advance our basic understanding of how cells function, which we really don't have complete understanding uh, around that. And then we can map back to like uh, references on how like quote unquote normal would be. And that allows us to have insight into how diseases form and progress in ways in ways that we, we never could have imagined years ago. So I think this is crazy. I'm I'm blown away by Ed always, and I'm blown away by the ramifications of this work. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely very forward thinking and a really great scientist. That's it for this episode. And next week, we're going to be talking about something else that is very future forward looking, but from a historical perspective. And that is an interview I did with Blake Harris, who's a journalist who was tracking the kind of uh, the, the, the story of Oculus and Facebook and virtual reality and what it means. And it was a really fun conversation. So I'm looking forward to airing that interview. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahella, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit, visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Uh, you can get an ad-free version of the show there. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.